Hello again and welcome to another edition of the New Dominion Podcast. I am your co-host, Sean Kenny, with the Republican Standard. Sitting opposite is absolutely nobody because Marty Davis is not with us at the moment. He is He's rather ill, so we wish him a speedy recovery from whatever plague is visiting, our, visiting his house. Yet, I am still joined by Corey and Megan here at the magnificent Curitiba uh, Coffee Shop in downtown Fredericksburg. Guys, how's it going? How's it going? It's going pretty good. Yeah, going good. Uh, definitely a lot going on this week, work-wise. So I feel like mm-hmm. we've been kind of strung out, both of us. But. Yeah, it's been it's been busy. It's yeah. been busy just between you know business stuff, life stuff, side hustle stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> all the stuff and all the things. Just gotta get that bread, kind of thing. It's like yeah, all that. Um, so obviously we're all kind of in between snowstorms of sorts. Which if you're from points north, it's like what are you talking about? But if you're from the south rather than just from the country i mean five inches of snow is going to do it for you right oh yeah so yeah we must suspend everything and go for the the basic necessities of life which yes milk bread beer and cigarettes which, right <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. and toilet paper and, and toilet, toilet paper, paper. Yeah, yeah you can't forget that yeah we really haven't gotten any snow like until recently right yeah we didn't get any snow last year no uh, so i don't think we've really gotten any snow since what we lovingly like to call the snowpocalypse of yes 2022 yeah Yeah. which was a great time i appreciated it but oh well well what do you do what do you do (laughs) yes um interesting too much fun of course not no that we banned that a long time ago um (laughs) the um see i guess this week we had uh fundraising reports come out from spanberger uh stoney on the democratic side and on the republican side although they haven't really announced uh miares and winsome sears spanberger of course having the largest amount of of cash on hand about three million dollars worth um, which is a rather impressive haul. Most of it's federal money, um, but that all instantly transfers into state money um, because in Virginia, where it's the Wild West, you can spend as much as you want just as long as you report it, um, which is great news for campaign consultants, but, you know, uh, you know, it makes you scratch your head elsewhere. Um, Sounds like someone's really prepared for this run. <laughs> somebody's really prepared for this run. Um, but the thing is, though, is that because it's Virginia and because it's an off-season, anybody can cut a check, right, and just instantly change the dynamic of a race. Uh, LeVar Stoney has something on the order of, like, I mean, maybe a fraction of that. I think it's um, – she's outraised him, like, pretty much, like, four to one at this rate. Hmm. Um, yeah. And he, he really didn't raise anything. I mean, he just he, – I mean, he's a pittance – just like he's not really taking it seriously. But, of course, his backers are the like Terry McAuliffe. Right. So do you really have to take money seriously when Terry McAuliffe's in your back pocket? Nope. Probably not. Yeah. Um, and then Jason Mayares has about one, one and a half in his pack. Um, Winsome Sears has half of that, about 700K-ish in there. Um, she raised about a quarter million. She spent about a quarter million, um, which isn't great, but it is what it is. Um, Mayares raised half a million, spent about a quarter million, so... He added to his totals, but Spamberger seems to be in quiet control of her own destiny at this rate. Right. It, it, it looks pretty, it looks pretty, um, I've, you know, what we have seen, especially in modern politics, if someone looks like they have it pretty locked down. It they really, got it locked down. It, it, it's, it, <laughs> we're, we're rarely shocked. But, um, you know, is there anyone out there that you think could surprise us, and um, especially, especially a Republican op- opposition? So it, it depends on who's in the White House, right? If, if there were a couple more polls that came out today um, that showed Biden, you know, narrowing the gap with Trump and really not broadening it, and then the battleground states, Trump still wins five of the six or six out of the seven, depending on which metric you want to use. The only one that Trump loses is Wisconsin. He sweeps the board everywhere else. 
Yeah. So election held the day Trump becomes the, the president. And if that's the case in 2024, then 2025 is going to look a lot like 2017, where you have this Democratic tidal wave just right. cleaning everything out. I mean, it's just, it's just going to be bad um, or good, depending on your, your viewpoint. Um, if Biden is still in the White House, though, then it starts looking a little bit more like 2021, where you could have either Meares or Sears on the ticket and you know, just kind of powered by sort of national angst. I mean, if you're in, you're out. If you're out, you're in. Um, that's enough to make Republicans a little more competitive. The additional advantages each one has, those Miaris is obviously from Cuban-American descent. Um, uh, Winsome is from Caribbean descent, uh, Jamaica specifically. And both of them are able to kind of make inroads in their own constituencies that other candidates might not be able to in a, in a, in a real way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's an advantage to each provided they don't bloody each other in the nomination contest, right? And that's kind of the catch. However, if, if Trump is in the White House, how does, how, I mean, that, that, that means it's entirely uphill running. You're in a 10-point deficit just walking out of the gate. Even if you were able to, to, to put the bells on and make those kind of inroads, it might not be enough to overwhelm a candidate like Spanberger, unless the progressives are so upset with her that they, they, they stay home. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't see that particularly happening if Trump's in the White House and people are in a mood to punish. Does that make sense? Yeah, th that makes a lot of sense. I feel that um, Abigail Spamberger, out of all of the uh, senators that have kind of come up in her time period, I think she is probably the least offensive for progressives. I don't know a lot of progressives that have a lot of uh, really bad things to say about her. I mean, there's definitely some stuff that she doesn't line up on uh, in, uh, in a few areas, but not enough to where progressives see her as like a, as a real threat. Like a step back or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah. Interesting enough that she does, she's actually much more progressive than her handlers. She puts on the kind of the radical centrist sort of sports coat, but deep down she, she she's definitely left of center. Um, whereas like LeVar Stoney is, is kind of like he presents himself as a progressive, but he's backed by the Clinton machine, mm -hmm. which is much more centrist, right? So it's like <laughs> the money doesn't line up with the political values of the candidate, but, um, it just seems like a weird dynamic. I don't know how that evens out. Right. So yeah. I think it's really hard to, to know because in recent history, you know, what constitutes as a progressive candidate i feel like there has been a paradigm shift you know from like aoc going into like maybe someone like jamal bowman or you know or you know, so on and so forth like they're not all the same or ro Khanna, which like ro Khanna, he, you know he i feel like ro kind of puts himself in the progressive um camp but sometimes i'm like well that's not exactly a progressive right. position <laughs> But Rokana is consistent, so and I think I think people are conf uh, I think progressives are still comfortable with him because they feel like, for the most part, they, they, they what you see is what you get. Um, so I think that's why he's a little passable. But he does some things where I'm like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> Don Scott, for instance, Speaker of the House of uh, Delegates right now, definitely progressive, mm -hmm. right? But he's also like leadership quality. And it's one thing if you're an AOC throwing rocks, right? Mm -hmm. it's something else when you're kind of when you're governing. And you have to build a coalition to get there. And that means yeah. you trade off some of your, your passion, for lack of a better phrase, for um, some sensibility and, and moderation, you know? Yeah, right. I was going to say that, too. I feel like that is, I mean, inevitably the case, regardless of if you are 
conservative leaning, progressive leaning, like if you are going to work with your counterparts, at some point you have to compromise, right? Or like you said, trying to build coalitions or there are people that you want a part of your coalition that, you know, may not align with you on everything, but inevitably you're going to have to make some concessions. I think that's just kind of how the party system really works yeah. if it's actually working right <laughs> does it feel like it's working for anybody out there <laughs> the latest poll um yeah, yeah. which interesting enough in the polls you so see if you introduce rfk jr to it he actually gets somewhere between 17 to 21 percent of the vote yeah and if you ask them who's your number two choice they split right down the middle half go trump half go biden yeah um which is interesting in and of itself because that's not like like a Ross Perot kind of candidacy yeah. right um where he gets like like maybe just 15 percent i mean 21 percent's plenty enough to qualify for the presidential debates mm-hmm. yeah um at least it used to be i think they may have bumped those numbers up but yeah well we, we, there's a, i have a lot of opinions on that <laughs> you know there i think um i think the past couple of presidential ele- elections i think really show that um mainstream media is um you know they have their alliances they are definitely bought and paid for and whatever when the rnc says hey this is our direction or the dnc says this is our direction they go out of their way to serve those two entities and i think that the way i mean just looking at like how iowa i think iowa turned out how it was going to turn out um but Leading up to that, how some of the other candidates were kind of scooped out of the conversation at the very last minute, um, that was not by accident. It was very purposeful to, you know, to uh, put the uh, the top candidates, you know, at the very top of focus of voters and then anyone else, whether it's on the Republican side or the Democratic side, um, the media just ignores them. Yeah. You know, you know, and they're like this, you know, you know, there's like this fourth wing of the government. You know, that just does the bidding of, you know, whoever they happen to be encamped with. Yeah. And I think, honestly, just the whole like debate format, like, are you really learning anything about, (laughs) you know, it'd be one thing, I think, if it was more like kind of a long form, you actually get to like hear real opinions and not just this like hyper scripted kind of response that a campaign has like crafted for a candidate. But like when you have 30 seconds to answer a question, like how much depth can you really provide to an answer and not that like you can't learn anything right I think you learn more about like their interactions with like their competitors than you do like really about their policy because how much time can you really delve into that but I just feel like there has to be a better way (laughs) debates come off to me as like professional roasts like they're not yeah they're not as they're not as good as like comedy central roasts that's how we should do all of them exactly but they're really good at like i got the zinger in my pocket and i'm just waiting for the opportunity to say it you know yeah Yeah, it's like kind of showmanship versus like Mm -hmm. real engagement but Mm -hmm. i guess that that's kind of the point i I guess that's what the people want they're just giving them what they want i think the last time i really saw like a genuine exchange was like well gee maybe i learned something from these guys i think it was like when tim kane went up against paul ryan Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe it wasn't Paul Ryan. It was, I think it was Kane and, um, oh shoot, I, it was one of the vice presidential debates. As a matter of fact, it may not, it may have been Dick Cheney all the way back then. Oh no, the the vice president debates. That, no, that was um, wasn't that Paul Ryan and Biden? Maybe. Yeah, and Biden, Biden like worked him. Yeah, I mean, Biden, Biden worked him, and 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 Ryan was was really polite and kind of like pointing it out, but it felt more like a policy discussion rather than two guys just going to war, right? right. These are like two classy political operators 
who knew the game and weren't, I mean, they still had their zingers, right? But they right. were actually like comparing notes. And they were seated, and it felt more like a. Con- mm-hmm. and it felt yeah. like we got the eavesdrop into a conversation. Yeah, that's a better debate format than two guys at a podium. Yeah, throwing yeah. out zingers, and I agree. And, and yeah. I, that, that debate between them was like was was pretty um, was pretty prolific because, in all intents and purposes, I think that was like the last time I remember seeing Biden like in top form. Yeah, like his like truly formidable like political form. Yeah, and it's, that's the old Biden. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> or or fortunately, depending on I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just it's like you feel bad for Biden. I mean, it's it's I, I want to be able to oppose this guy on policy, but like he's just not the Biden he was. And yet he's being propped up. I mean, this feels like late, like late Republic Rome or late mm. Imperial Rome. Like right. we're just keeping this guy alive just to kind of maintain power. And everybody knows this guy shouldn't be running. Right. And and yet we're running him anyway. It's like, do the yeah. Democrats not have any leaders? I mean. Well, I think like a real I mean, strategy... I, I say this from the party of Trump, right? But like. <laughs> like, 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 like yeah. But like, did we, Gavin Newsom? I mean, what's her name? Um, Whitmer up in Michigan. Uh, Ga- Gavin's clearly biding his time. He he's looking for the first opportunity, and uh, you know, I think his weird debate with Ron DeSantis was like him, like kind of testing the waters a little bit, trying to figure some things out. Yeah. Do you think it becomes? You, you think uh, Biden keeps uh, Kamala Harris as vice president? <laughs> Not a chance. Not a chance. <laughs> you think she's, that- un- she's uncompelling. She's uncompelling in brown. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> it ain't gonna happen. I'm pretty so, sure. I'm so you're pretty- replacing with somebody. You're replacing with somebody who's like uh, not compelling, but you know, slightly tanned out of California, and yeah, say, maybe, "Hey, yeah." You know I saying? mean, this is the acceptable <laughs> sort of. Or this, we go to Bernie and say, "Okay, Bernie, now's your moment. We need you up there. We know this is going downhill fast. We just really need another man there. Yeah, right? you know. Yeah, I mean, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so who would you, Megan? Who would you prefer to see, like, in the? Oh, I don't know. To be honest, like of the slate. Of people, I just I don't I don't like, even know. Yeah. Can yeah. Americans have heroes anymore? Is that where we're at? Like, well, you can ask Corey. I say this all the time: never meet your heroes. Right. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's just you know one thing I do think like the the Democrats and and certainly the progressives have so much room to galvanize and we talk about this a lot like young voters, people engaging people in issues that are really important to them, um, but. I mean, even if you dial that like to like the local level in our most recent election, like people are just not turning out. And I think certainly for the Democrats, if they want to move forward, they're going to have to address some of those critical issues that they're having because they're just mm-hmm. not engaging people in a way that yeah makes them want to come out and vote. Because, uh, you know, you're essentially kind of all voting for the same thing, it feels like. Yeah. Right. That's kind of interesting because like on the right, it's like you, you've got the, 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 the populist nationalist set. You also, I mean, they feel the same way. And yet far from disengaging, they're actually doubling down. Yeah. It's almost like they're afraid that they're losing something. It seems like the progressives are afraid they're never going to get what they, they deserve or want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, I think that's a really puts a pin on it very finely. Yeah. 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 That's, but that's not a good politics, right? No. That's not what it ought to be. <laughs> Definitely no. not. Yeah. Polit- it's supposed to be about policy <laughs> and, and moving the country forward. Yeah. Uh, but, or we just, but we just seem to be like just in this kind of uh, this vortex of, disappointment <laughs> yeah it's it's the the bureaucrats sitting thwart, standing athwart history saying well did you think about this and yeah. delaying it and delaying it and delaying it. and no we really do need more affordable housing it's like yeah but we don't want that so we're gonna throw up 
20 roadblocks and question it until it fails and right. wait for the next election. Like, mm, that doesn't seem like who the hell, who the hell voted them in the, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's another yeah. soapbox. I think too, just like the idea of like for the presidential run, like the idea of doing another like Biden Trump, right? I think everyone collectively, no matter what side you're on has to feel like. Why? Why? Really? Yeah. Why are we doing this to ourselves? <laughs> Again? Yeah. We need to bring Wasn't back it bad like enough the first time like, prime minister's questions or something like that. This right. is what we should have taken. We should have kept that one thing <laughs> from the British Empire. And it's like you know we're just going to do PMQs, and we'll actually let them go back and forth, and we'll see whose wits prevail. Um, we don't even get that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's optimistic. On a, on a much cheerier <laughs> note, um, you know, one of the things we we, we kind of you know pregame before we're talking in here is we're talking about the ongoing conflict in the Gaza Strip. Um, Megan, you've got a wealth of experience in places, disaster zones at this rate. Um, presently, I think as recently as two weeks ago, the Israelis had actually thought that they had cleared out the northern part of the Gaza, Gaza Strip um, from Hamas. They actually pulled troops out and started focusing on the southern part, which is nowhere near as dense, and then all of a sudden, Gaza City flares back up again. I think they, they initially thought there were only about 350 miles of tunnels. It turns out there's like 700 miles of tunnels over there, and they've got some... Um, pretty sophisticated stuff. So the narrative two weeks ago that the, the IDF was actually winning in Gaza has now flipped entirely to the IDF has no idea what they're doing in Gaza right now. And they're using the term mowing the grass in order to keep the conflict in, in scope. You've had experiences in places like Haiti, for instance, um, where you've seen hum- human suffering, although it wasn't man-made. It was, uh, or at least to, to some degree, it wasn't man-made. It was an earthquake. But then like the man-made crisis kind of came after with, you know, we're trying to help and, and all that. Um, from the perspective of people on the ground, having been on the ground and, and things of like that, what do you think the people in Gaza are going through right now? What are they thinking about? And how are they coping? And what are the, the key things you think we could be doing that maybe we're not doing so well, at least internationally, and in trying to provide aid and, and resolve the conflict? Yeah, I, I think certainly from... Um you know, and I, I don't, uh, you know, purport to be an expert, right? But I, I do think certainly you have a humanitarian crisis occurring. And I think regardless of kind of how are you looking at, at, at the circumstances geopolitically, I, I would think most average people can look at that, zoom out and objectively see, right, just the number, sheer number of deaths civilian or otherwise, is we're looking at a humanitarian crisis. And certainly when you look at the fallout impacts of that, not just, you know, uh, deaths that are occurring from direct conflict, but all of the, you know, death that is sure to come from things like famine, disease, what happens when a society like completely unfolds like that due to uh, conflict or natural disaster, right? Once once it unfolds, like the impacts are largely the same. Um, and I I would venture to say that the for the people of Gaza, I mean, you're living in a constant state of uh, survival mode, you know. So <clears throat> I think certainly there's a great deal that the international community can be doing in terms of encouraging ceasefire, certainly humanitarian corridors and things that can get actual aid and supplies into Gaza. But like at this point, where, where is that aid even going to go when it, because it is, it is unfolded so much. Um, and when you really look at the impacts of that long term and kind of, so some of my experience 
in Haiti after the earthquake, it does not take long for that situation to devolve. Um, you know, once, especially in, in terms of physical destruction, and that's something that I do feel like is it, it's not the same uh, being present after a natural disaster. It's certainly not the same as being present during active, you know, missile strikes and bombings and things like that. But the physical destruction of that largely looks the same. Right. And, you know, the, the impacts on medical infrastructure, on people's ability to have movement, right, throughout physical spaces. Um, yeah, the ability to extricate people that are, you know, buried under buildings. You know? Yes. Right. And or just basic food and water, yeah. sanitation, things of that nature. Yeah. Yes. And it does not take long for infectious diseases when you're looking at encampments that are inevitably right after even after like shelling stops, like people are going to be refugees in their own state. Right. And so it, it really is a a crisis from a humanitarian perspective and looking at kind of my experience after the earthquake, which I know I've talked like a little bit about, like not really in detail because I find people often don't always want like the real detail of what that looks like. I'm kind of um, into but, the real detail you know, though. Like that's, that's things that again, we, we, we see it on the TV screen. We go, Oh gee, that's really terrible before going to a, a microwave dinner or something like that. Yeah. That matters, though, right? I mean, it's like most Americans have no idea what like hunger actually looks like, right? We talk about it. Yes, yeah, and those impacts are so you know longstanding. Um, you know, uh, I, I think certainly in in my experience after the earthquake in Haiti, you had an entire country, uh, well, not an entire country, an entire like city center for a country that the majority of people in the country live in. I think similar, right, when you're looking at Gaza, you have such a high, tight concentration of people in one space that then is completely decimated, whether that be, in Haiti's case, in Port-au-Prince. I mean, the entire city, basically, was destroyed. You're looking at a circumstance where over, you know, 300,000 people were killed in such a small space. Yeah. Um, How many people are in Port-au-Prince? Um, I think probably like eight or nine million maybe wow. uh, country, countrywide but i'm not i i would have to double check that sure. to be honest um but the majority of people i mean there are a number of people that live in the countryside but port-au-prince is like the hub that's where everyone goes to try to get a job to try to you know have upward mobility in their life um and uh, geographically i don't want to equate that situation to gaza right they're very different circumstances but when you have an entire city structure that's completely leveled, I mean, what what forward progress do you really foresee on the horizon for people that are living there that are currently, in, in the case of Gaza, in survival mode and actively still under threat of direct threat of life, not just, you know, uh, in, in terms of the security situation that inevitably unfolds as well once you have society really broken down like that. Um, and I think there are a lot of really grim realities of what that looks like for people on the ground that I don't think is really being examined in a really critical way when you're talking about like people's political opinions of kind of what's happening, right? That's a really mixed bag of how people feel, you know, what sign they align with more one or the other, however that looks. But at the end of the day, you're, you're looking at a really grim situation for people who are currently living in Gaza and 
you know, no end in sight for, for their own safety and security. So some of the things that like initially, you know, we talk about like food, water, sanitation, electricity, um, some of the other intangibles like law and order, education, um, just the, the, the daily kind of getting back into the, you know, then construction and getting back into the daily things of life. Um, obviously, healthcare is on there as well. Um, in a in a in a war zone or in a place like like Port-au-Prince where the event has happened, um, what are the some of the things you need to provide immediately, and how long do you have to provide them? I think the length of immediate aid uh, really depends on the circumstance, and it really depends on the societal and governmental structures that are existing to uphold those things after like an international response ends. For the case of Gaza, I don't really know what that looks like, just given the, you know, one, that the conflict is still ongoing, right? Mm -hmm. So who is going to manage that in an effective way? I would imagine it's going to have to be a collaborative international response. Um, But certainly food aid, medical um, and shelter, right, are kind of the the three core. Um, And and especially when you're looking at such a high concentration of people being corralled and pushed into really tight spaces, there's a lot of implications when there's no sanitation, when there's no electricity, right, what that looks like for infectious diseases. I mean, it was only maybe like seven, six or seven months in Haiti before cholera hit, right, mm. in a lot of the tent cities and encampments. Um, and then that, you know, just wreaks havoc, again, on a, on a population of people who are already in such dire circumstances. Um, but I, I, I think also something to consider is um, just with the, the extreme number of deaths that have taken place, someone also has to go in and find all of those people's yeah. bodies, right? right? And that's like a very grim reality, and that gets like really dark. But when you're looking at that, I mean... The reality is, is like those people are not like dead and they had a funeral and they're like, yeah. you know, at what, peace what is somewhere. The present, do, you know, do we know what the present count is right now for civilian deaths in Gaza? Um, the top of our heads? I think it's 30,000. Okay. And then uh, for, what they, for what they can actually count, and it's estimated about another 20,000 that are buried in the rubble that Oof. has not been uh, accounted for. Oof. Yeah, and I mean that, you know... Like it, realistically, and this was certainly the case in Haiti after the earthquake. A lot of those people, you're never going to find them, right? Right. right. I, I mean, that is the that's the unfortunate reality. And just from like a medical sanitation perspective, that's also a very grim reality, and that looks and feels horrific when you're experiencing it and going through it. And for especially doctors in Gaza who are trying to engage in, you know life-saving medical care they are also still under threat that you know i mean i don't know how many doctors have been killed in gaza but a lot of the accounts uh from uh you know doctors without borders other organizations that are still that have had a presence in the gaza strip for a long time and still trying to operate there to the best of their ability the accounts from a medical side are horrific right? right and and a lot of those accounts are detailed within Um, the articles that were brought forth by South Africa, you've really detailed accounts of what it really actually physically looks like on the ground that I think is very easy to zoom out from and not really connect to that human fiber of like, yes, these are people's 
you know, families. This is a country that is comprised over 50% of children, right? So that's, if you take those numbers in half, even at 30,000, that's 15,000 children. Right, right, right. So you talked a little bit earlier about the the South African charges. Um, Obviously, the Israeli position is going to be very rigid, right? It's like 1,400 dead Jews. Um, They're using that as the the reason to go in there and remove Hamas, right? Um, And to some degree, it's their justification for the conflict. I mean, actually, entirely. This is their justification to the conflict. Until Hamas is removed and the rockets stop, they're going to continue to inflict this harm. Talk a little bit about what the South African government presented to the UN and what was their, their rationale for where they were coming from, because they used the word genocide, correct? Yes, that is correct. So it will be one of the few times that the conventions of genocide that were put in place after World War II have been applied and brought forth um, before the International Court of Justice. So after World War II, you had um, obviously the Holocaust, the unfolding of the Holocaust, the global commitment to sign on to these conventions of genocide to say never again, right? That's the terminology that's so encoded within not just the legal language, but um, all of the, you know, the the conversations surrounding the conventions of genocide at the time. Um, And there have been, you know, a couple governing bodies that were born from that. You're looking at the International Criminal Court, which focuses on individuals, um, and then the International Court of Justice, which focuses on entities, governments, right, or, you know, national groups. Um, and so it's a pretty historic uh, unfolding of those events um, that South Africa has now, you know, brought forth to the International Court of Justice um, that Israel's engaging uh, in genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza. Um, and so from a, from a, like a legal perspective and a international relations perspective, um, there have only been a few times in history where the conventions of genocide have been, um, even, you know, prosecuted or put forth against governments or individuals. Um, you have a few examples of that, the former Yugoslavia, which, you know, most people would, uh, Instantly reflect. remember. Yes, yeah. exactly. And the, was the first time that the articles of genocide were upheld, right? And you're looking at the genocide against Bosnian Serbs. I mean, um, you know, they were... Um, it was Bosnian Muslims. Yes, and, and, yes. Yeah, Sarajevo being in particular. Yep, so, exactly. So, so this is one of those where, like, the, the for, for speaking with the South Africans, they, they've got history with Israel. They've, they've got some beef. Um, and, and so because the Israelis supported the South Africans during the apartheid era, um, and now that the ANC is in power, it's, it's kind of paying them back in spades, so to speak. Um, what specifically did the, are the South Africa? I mean, so, so there's the kind of the political dynamic, but the, the charge has to be founded in some sort of more. Like you said, it's very rare for something like this to be brought in front of the United Nations. So what were their specific intentions? Is that you're not just waging war against Hamas, you're waging war against the Palestinian people. I mean, and and is it that the it's, it's like because genocide is supposed to have a certain definition, right? There has to be intention aimed at an ethnic or um, racial identity, um, and it doesn't even have to go to scale, right? You don't need hundreds of thousands to make the omelet here. You you just need um, you know the, those specific. I think there's three specific things that make it 
in general is like there's intention directed towards a racial or ethnic group and there's one other ingredient that I'm missing in it but you know but that's sort of their their overwhelming charge is that the, the Israelis are doing this by intent and design right so we're looking at an 84 page document that South Africa has brought to the UN um, and there's a great deal of detail you know contained obviously within that on the, the charges of genocide and intent to commit genocide all the details of what that looks like but a great majority of what these articles are focusing on are um, instances of uh, leadership within Israel uh, both you know political and military leadership um, what they have said publicly the you know their intentions are in terms of how the conflict in Gaza is being handled and also the indirect, instances of what that looks like when it's unfolding, right? So not just their, you know, purported kind of, uh, I don't want to say rhetoric, but, you know. Rhetoric. Yeah, exactly. That's what they're using. So. Yeah, so there's those instances, and then they have documented cases of um, the medical perspective, right, from doctors within Gaza, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, and the the really critical impacts of um, being cut off from all utilities, food, incoming, you know, impending famine. Um, so all of those pieces together, uh, South Africans' case is really saying, if you look at this in totality, not just looking at the response to October 7th, but if you look at the historical presence of Israel within the Gaza Strip mm-hmm. and the, you know, historical actions that the Israeli government has taken. And I want to also drive home the point that there's a big difference between individuals that are living in Israel and the Israeli government, Mm -hmm. right? And the actions of the government itself, what the government itself has spoken to and said, um, which I'm sure we, you know, we'll talk about some of those quotes a little bit more directly, but there's a, you know, they're not. I'm not conflating the two. Sure. But if you're looking at it from a you know geopolitical perspective, South Africa is saying that, right? All, this historical context really matters when you're looking at the actions of Israel within Gaza. Right. So one of the exemptions to to the definition of genocide is not. It's, it's you mentioned religious or um, ethnic or cultural, um, like this or cultural is kind of a borderline thing, but you know it's there. Um, but against political groups, it's 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 okay to genocide, um, if that makes sense. Um, so one of the Israeli responses is we're not waging. So you hear, and it's a line that the IDF has used almost from day one. It's like we are waging war against Hamas. Um, that their intention is to attack Hamas, and if they have to punch through um, a few human shields to do this, then they'll do so, right? But so long as the rockets continue to rain on Israel, um, they're going to press their advantage. Does that somewhat, I mean, do you find that argument convincing or do you find that to be a bit of a dodge or is it, you know, is it, is it, it's complicated and therefore it can get messy? I mean, I find it, I find it to be a bit of a dodge and like the term, like the concept of mowing the lawn. Right. Like when we really break down like the humanitarian um, um, consequences of what that actually means. And there are a lot of people who have never heard that before. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this and. When when mowing the lawn comes up, you know it is a it is it is a way it is a way that the the Israeli government talks about killing Palestinians, not 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 you know not insurgents, not terrorists, just killing 
um, you know, killing Palestinians. Because it used to be clipping the fingernails. That's what they used in the 70s, right? But that was when they were, if you've ever seen the movie Munich, it's like they're targeting specific members of the PLO. Yeah, they are. Their, their justification now is like, well, we don't know where they're hiding. So might as well mow the whole grass you, you gotta rather than got to do the whole thing rather right. than get the, the, the weeds. You know? Yeah, which I think if you really if you really zoom out and look at that, just that statement on its own, I think its intent is fairly clear when you combine that with many, many other officials who are not distinguishing between Palestinian people and Hamas operatives. But I think if you're just looking at the totality of the human numbers themselves, you cannot escape the fact that if the intent is to only right only target Hamas individuals who are a part of Hamas, that is certainly not the strategy that is unfolding. So I think if you're looking at that on its face, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear what the what the intent is, especially given now the length of time that the conflict is taking place. I think the farther and farther you get away from October. <laughs> The right. less people are going to sign on to that perspective of what's actually happening there, especially when you're looking at, you know, so many deaths being children, you know, individuals who are under 18 who who have, you know, very little to no agency in what's happening. So at some point, I do think from uh, an international legal perspective I do think that this will, uh, you know, coming out of, because it's going to take years, right, to, to truly litigate um, through the International Court of Justice what this looks like, even in uh, the former Yugoslavia, right, that happened We're still in the that. 90s, yeah. and that those uh, charges did not conclude until 2007, yeah. right? So, so, so here's the real, like, conundrum in it. So you have uh, Hamas operatives that are they're not going to stand up and say, okay, please shoot me, right? They're going to hide within a civilian population, um, while shooting rockets into southern Israel and towards Tel Aviv. Um, how are the Israelis supposed to respond to that, I think is what the... I mean, we heard that from Sam Richardson, who was here earlier, uh, and he kind of was like, well, if it's going to be us or them, then it's damn sure going to be them, right? Um, and there, there's, there's that sentiment, but certainly in Israel, and certainly you, know, you hear it you know, it closer to October 7th, but kind of bleeding away now, that they're perfectly... I mean, until the rockets stop. Like that's when, and when they when they st- like they, when they love their own children more than they love dead Israeli children, that's when we'll know the conflict's over. Um, how, but how many rockets are the the Israelis expected to take, right? Before the, you know, in terms of like exercising restraint, right? When Hamas, quite frankly, isn't exercising any restraint at all. Um, you know, so so then the question then becomes is like, well, are we just sort of exchanging? You know, dead Israelis for dead Palestinians, and we'll, we're comfortable so long as there's parity in the numbers, and that's what puts us to sleep at night. Or is it? Um, where's, there's got to be. There's, there's a better answer in there somewhere. And obviously, we've talked about this earlier. Like the Israeli logic on forces, and the logic of force in the Arab world is very different than than the American logic on it. Um, but yeah, you know, where's the deeper answer there? Right. Where I come from is we're talking about you know the level of the different levels of like capacity, right? And yes, Hamas is shooting rockets, but a rocket is very different from like a missile or a 2,000 pound bomb and its capability to do widespread damage. They're just using the best tool that they can make to, you know, 
to attack Israel, right? And no one, and no one at this table is apologist for Hamas. Okay? No, of so course let's, not. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's make that very clear. Or, or violence in general. Or violence right? in general, yeah. right? Like, but what we are talking about is like the difference in capability between the two, um, the two combatants, right? And if Israel wants to be, they can be far more targeted. They are far more targeted in how they do these things. Yes, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, guerrilla warfare, that is obviously a very difficult strategy or or there's a very difficult tactic to overcome when the, you know, when the combatants have the home field advantage within Gaza. But um, Israel has proven that they can be extremely targeted when they want to be. Um, But I think there is an overcorrection here because of some of the people who are at the top, like Bibi Netanyahu, who are really just trying to really trying to make up for a mistake. He's trying to stay in power. And he's trying to to stay in power. And so it's kind of the dirty secret that nobody wants to talk about. The Likud will only stay in power so long as there's a war. Right. 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 You know, and when you look at and when you look at um, uh, especially when you go through the articles, um, there is just so there are so many officials that are very open about how they don't care that they, they do not distinguish between the two to begin with. Like there is no principle in how they engage in this warfare is everyone is a target. Everyone is um, everyone is appropriate. When you look at the articles, there's list after list. Yeah, so does, does that mean that we're blaming the Israeli right for taking the Hamas position? I don't. I don't think it's really. Uh, well, I mean, whether it's a Hamas's position or not, right? The the civilians that are being killed are not really. Re, they're not really responsible for that, right? Which would be the Hamas position, right? I mean, they. They. I mean, if it, if a rocket hit an Israeli school, they. I mean, that's a win for them, right? right. For 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 a terrorist, so, so for, for a terrorist organization, right? Right. We're, so but, but we're talking about a. a we're, we're we're talking about a self proclaimed democratic, you know principled nation which democracies just because you're a democracy they, doesn't get make you like wash you in the blood i mean democracies yeah, I, are the most violent form of government <laughs> yes i they are the ones that are on national television I mean, doing the spin and trying to show everybody that hey we're doing everything that we can to do the right thing here um but then the next the next spokesman says something that you know that erases it's like from the I, river to the sea yeah, israel right. will uh yeah all yeah that, right yeah. right so yeah. It's like yeah so it's, it's in hamas's charter but it's in the Likud's charter too so who uh, who knows or like, shahs or any yeah. of the which is one of the demographic chains in israel that i don't think most people so i, I went there and um uh, before the pandemic um the tiberius which is right. this resort town it's on the sea of galilee um, and it's, it's, it's supposed to be full of German tourists. I mean, you, you go out during the day and you take all these little, you know, like Catholic or Orthodox or Christian groups on there and it's yeah. the Jesus boat. And then you, they flip the card over and it's the, you know, Trinkgeld, which is drinking money and you put it in there and tip the boatman. But, um, what happened is that the, the Heredi or the Heredim ended up, uh, kind of like mass colonizing the area up there. Um, and they won the city council election. So they rigidly enforced the, uh, um, the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And so from Friday to Saturday night, it's closed, which is half of the, that's, that's the weekend. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now the, the whole, uh, downtown district is pretty much a ghost town. Yeah. Um, but the, the Haradim who, who do not purchase, don't fight with the IDF by the way, but they still vote, but they vote hard right all the time. And it's dramatically changed the discourse in Israel over the last 20 years. Um, 
where you know the the the, the you're, you're speaking of like in terms of like you know they, they start to sound like Hamas is like the, the Haredi really are there right mm-hmm. I mean that's that's what they, and it just gives power to like Shahs and Likud and others it actually kind of stretches the right so far out that they seem like the center right and labor and um so when when you lose guys like Ariel Sharon like right. you've lost right right like Kadama and you know they, 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 when you lose guys like that and they have to go out and form their own party. Oh um, yeah, to the left. Yeah, um, because Lakut has been dragged so far in one direction. That's a that's that's a that's a change, right? Sometimes they'll do um, press conference uh, from like a Lakut member's like office or something, and they'll have like a map behind them. It's like the map of Greater Israel, and it's like from the Nile of, to the Euphrates. It, it, yes, <laughs> it, yeah, it's from, literally from the Nile to the Euphrates, and it's like, well, where does it end? Then? <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think. To be to to the point earlier of like the rhetoric being largely the same, I think there you can't escape that, right. right? You can't escape the fact that if your intent is to disarm a threat, that's clearly not what's happening. Mm. And I do think that um, that's an interesting way to raise it. It's like, are we disarming a threat or are we doing something else? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I. I you, well, that's the definition you, of proportionality in this sense. Right. And it, exactly. will, it will be really interesting, I think, to see the, the conversations that come from the articles being brought to the UN over time. But I think more pressing for the, the current circumstance is you often have a lot of people that say that, like, well, what, what, what else are they supposed to do? Or then what should they do? I think the point is... You know, none Which is of what us. Hamas would say backwards. It's like, right. look, you've put us in a strip of tw- like 25 kilometers long, you know, five kilometers deep. Yes. Or it's not five kilometers. It's it's, it's a little bit bigger, like 12. But still, like they would say the same thing. It's like we get 70% unemployment. We have no resources whatsoever. We're not allowed to do with our territory what they want. And these Israelis say, well, we'll give you independence. You can make the Gaza Strip independent tomorrow. And they say, yeah, but it comes with strings, right? We wouldn't have our own military. We wouldn't have our own customs. We wouldn't have all the other things other nations could do. And then we're expected to be content with Gaza City. And that's it. Um, so what else do we expect it to do but violent conflict, which is sort of the last resort of legitimacy? Um, somebody's got a gun in their hand. That's a pretty legitimate argument, right? You can't ignore it. And so what else is Hamas? So the Hamas and Fatah will make the same arguments. Right, exactly. And that's really, I think, the, the deeper point there is that you could probably examine that from either perspective and really um, make it make sense to someone. But what you can't ever make sense to me is... 30,000, you know, 15,000 dead babies. Yes. You can never make that make sense and say that there's anything humanitarian about that. Right. Just like you can never make a terrorist attack in Israel make sense to me. And you know what I mean? Like people often say, well, then what should they do? Because this is still happening. It's like the, the reality is, is that none of us are military experts, nor are we in positions where we have the agency to like dictate what those decisions are. And I think that that often is used as an attempt to disarm the grim reality of what the humanitarian situation there is. Mm -hmm. And if the bar for someone's humanity is like, well, we dropped a flyer before we blew you to oblivion. Right. Then we're really low on the stakes of of what humanity really means for people, because it's it's really easy to to look at it in a sanitized way to look at it even if you're just looking at numbers right right it becomes very easy to distance yourself from what the realities of that look like but for people on the ground in gaza right now um 
there's no way you could ever make that argument make sense. You know, just like using cancer to beat cancer or like one cold. Yes. And so I think for a, a nation who has a great deal of international support from really uh powerful powerful nations nations, geopolitically strategically right militarily i think that to make an argument that while there's nothing else we can do but you know have all of this human collateral i think we should all find unacceptable i think we've talked about this a couple times where it's like you know well we're talking about like a different different uh, mentality mentality or reality of how people deal with conflict and like you know obviously you know uh, Israeli citizens are not going to see conflict in the same way that American citizens do. I I gave a lot of thought to that because I think that it is very true. But I think the issue is, regardless of what uh, the Israeli uh, government see, how they see this conflict is still irrelevant. If America who is supplying this, who has done similar things and has learned, we should have learned these lessons, right? Um, It's kind of irrelevant what they think because they can only do it with our help to begin with. If they were just doing their own thing and we were just out in America's outside looking in, it's like, I don't know why they're doing this. That'll be different. But we are making it possible. Those 2,000 pound bombs they were dropping on Gaza, they were our bombs, Stand with made in America, even some of the worst conflicts in the Middle East. Like we were talking about Iraq, Afghanistan, and some of our biggest, uh, um, you know, affronts there. Like we didn't drop anything more than five hundred because we understood <laughs> what happens when you drop a big bomb. Yeah, do the implications of dropping a big bomb in in a in a densely populated area. Now we're talking about a densely populated area that is. Like three times more densely populated than any place we've ever dropped a bomb, you know, yeah. and, and and so now we're getting into now we're so now we're getting into crazy territory. It's like and there's no way that the people who are dropping these bombs do not understand the level of destruction that is going to happen. And I think if you really want to take care of the threat, disarm the threat. You know, they killed they killed the Hamas leader in Lebanon. Okay. He was one of the moderates, by the way. Right. <laughs> well, they're really they're re- they're really good at uh, finding the moderates and bombing them, and Which saying how, you, that, and, how they created and, Hamas in the first yeah, place, and saying, yeah. and saying that um, they don't have a they don't have a partner in peace. So. Yeah, because they needed to, they needed to negotiate with somebody in the Gaza Strip, and they weren't going to negotiate with the PLO at the time. Right. Yeah. And, th- and this is one thing I want to I just wanted to say about the articles of, of what South Africa is trying to adjudicate is not is it indeed a genocide is that it's plausible that it's a genocide. There's a plausibility based on, based on the intentions that they perceive that this is something that could be happening. So I think we had, I just wanted to be just kind of clarify that this is not, this isn't like legally, this is in fact a genocide. Mm -hmm. This is still a preliminary kind of judgment on what is does, does, what it the, could or could not does the south african government led by anc get to to define genocide when they popularize songs like kill the boer yeah well, <laughs> no, well you know well, i we, think that's up to the world court right so so if, if if that's kind of like left to like a, a subjective sort of standards like well it's kind of cool when the south africans do it but 
not so cool when the Israelis do likewise, or maybe live up to the same spirit. Right. I mean, you see what I'm driving at? It's like the, 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 the problem, violence to to resolve international disputes, it's, it's very un, unfortunate. It's just such a soft word because it's not. It's, it's like the problem. It's like the great problem. And so yeah. do you trade peace for stability? And Kissinger applied that, and it worked well for 50 years, and now we're at where we're at. Hamas was given like literally billions of dollars to do infrastructure, and when instead of building homes, they built tunnels. Right? Instead of uh, participating in the in the hydroponics plant that they were building in the Gaza Strip, they used that very same material, the fans for hydroplanes to fly into the concert. They used the 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 the, the uh, pipes for for new rockets. They used the fuel for hospitals for getting those rockets off the ground. It's like, mm-hmm. is there a partner for peace in Hamas of all things? And if not. Right. If we're saying, well, no, then who is the partner for peace? And it's, is it going to be some sort of manufactured Palestinian government, quote unquote? Do the Israelis have to take back over and apply a peace? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's very good answers well, moving the, forward. Well, the, yeah. I think the Palestinian people are the key. I mean, it's like I think it's less likely for that to make sense if the if the Palestinian people feel like they even have a future, even if they did do all that and there's still extremism all that stuff would be gone anyway. You know what I mean? So it's like if they, they, it's like you can give people some stuff, right? They don't have, but they still don't have jobs. They still don't have a a real clear, like clear lane for their own, for no agency for, for their own agency. Giving people stuff doesn't mean anything but giving you know it's like that you know it's the whole kind of adage of give a fish you know teach a man to fish right yeah you know that that kind of whole thing right like give people what they need to for self-determination and they'll probably be less focused on you but as long as as long as um as long as gaza is is blockaded from the rest of the region it doesn't matter what they give them. The people have, they can't make money. They can't build wealth. They can't do anything that. that so even like the hydroponics count- example, right? I mean, here the Israelis actually worked in good faith to actually give them these things. I mean, they, they genuinely thought that Hamas got it and being a partner. And Hamas turns around and uses that to, to, to build rockets. The, the $3 billion in aid that have been given since cast lead, right? I mean, it was just cash disbursements and they, they buy concrete and they build tunnels with it. It's true. Like, like, but, it's, but at the same time, it's like, you know, if it, but an entire population is still technically being imprisoned and it's like, I can have hydroponics, but I'm not free, you know? So it's like that sometimes but, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's, it's a priority thing. Free, right? free, free to do what? Freedom to just live their life. And they don't feel like they can live but their they, life. I mean, they, they live their life. They I mean, live they, a life, but it, they don't, but they, but they have people that are right next door to them that have access to everything that they could possibly want. And then they are, that they are, and they are restricted, not just, not just in, how they can move about the area, but they are restricted about how many, how much resources they can get at one time. Like they, like they, like how much food they can have at one time. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of extraneous restrictions that really doesn't allow people to live a healthy life. And um, I think that uh, it is far more complicated than just. A group of people. Uh, but how would you start that, though? I mean, you start it small with, like, building projects, homes. You start it with a desalinization plant, which the Israelis practically donated. Mm-hmm. You start it with hydroponics and economic opportunities there. Because it's not just Gaza City writ large. It's, it's. I mean, you, you got to start with somewhere. And with even those initial starts, Hamas 
monopolizes it and then uses it to, to make weapons of war. Well, I mean, Hamas is also, you know, <sighs> you know, it's also a uh, it's a foil of Israel's own making. You know what I mean? Like they 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 are they are just res- they are responsible for Hamas being in power as Hamas as, as, as Hamas is for doing all the things they do. Sure, and that doesn't are, exactly are, solve the problem. They are right? they are yeah. real convenient. They are really convenient, and but now it's a, now it's become something else. And I think that regardless of what the intention was, whether it was nefarious or whatever, we have a very, they, they, we all have a very serious problem here, right? It's but, like, and and Hamas's so, like goal though is, is they're not going to be satisfied with anything other than, you know, the, the eradication of the state of Israel. True. Yeah. Well, I, well. I think also, I mean, I think it is um, often the case that in the aftermath of these types of conflicts, someone is propped up right, in power to serve some type of role. But I think it's important also to really, like, critically examine what, like, development projects really look like, who they serve to benefit, right, who is often the case, not the community, right, community. whether that's, that's coming point. from, whether yeah. that's coming from an international agency, whether that's coming from uh, a government, right, like, those types of, uh, like, stabilization or development projects which also is going to be a piece of the puzzle for gaza to examine and was certainly the case in haiti in terms of rebuilding i mean millions of dollars can be poured and funneled into somewhere but if you're intentionally putting it in the hands of people who you know are not going to use it for that purpose right right uh you know, it's, like it's, it's, you, it's you kind have of, to examine. Kind of the point that I was yeah, yeah I was like trying you, to make, but I just wasn't pulling it all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I think it's important to examine that and to yeah. examine, you know, the efficacy of. Okay, like are these types of development projects serving the people who they really need to serve, or are they serving? a company that they were required to contract with to build it, right? right. And then where you follow the money oftentimes that does not lead back to people themselves right Mm. so it it, i think that's a critical lens that people really should take when they're looking at those types of projects that is very true you have a best case scenario it's like here's an example where they did it and they did it right it is where um in terms of development or or just like 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 post-conflict yeah post-conflict or development or i mean something that would apply to gaza let's put it that way um Oh, that's a really hard question because I, I feel like it is so often not done effectively. Or if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, kind of corporations who are benefiting, like it's done really effectively, I mean, like, right? Like but, you point to like Kirkuk, right? I mean, places in northern Iraq, like, okay, they did it really well, but what did that take? It took, well, a lot of oil, a lot of gas, mm-hmm. um, sort of a, an independent fiefdom for Kurdistan um, and 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I, yes. They've got the oil fields. They've got long. gas fields off of Gaza, but there's yeah. nobody's going. To, I mean, they've got gas fields off of Lebanon, and the Israelis are out there drilling it regardless, and and they're draining the fields now. Mm-hmm. So they're not willing to work with Lebanon, and they're certainly not going to work with the Palestinian Authority. Certainly not under anything in their Hamas. So, kind of removes that opportunity. But it's like, so like if Kirkuk's off the table, then like what else? Right. I mean, we don't really have a good example in Haiti. I don't think we have a good example in in Africa yet. Um, yeah, I find off, so often, you know, so many of these places are just exploited continually, yeah. right? Whether that be through conflict or development we projects. We didn't even get New Orleans you know? right. Right. <laughs> right. We just dropped a bunch of casinos in there. It's like, well, ah, well, problem solved. Yeah, well, and people often are left to, to languish, right? Yeah. That's the reality. And for, for me, when I'm looking at the circumstance in Gaza, especially if you're talking, like, and I feel like maybe I'm harping on this, but I think it's important to harp on. The number of children, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, those are like 
you know, futures robbed of people who could lead, right? Mm. And that often is the case in right. conflicts, right? Where you have, you know, people who could engage in a different way, mm. but they can't even get there because they're there's no there's no place for them to grow into or to thrive or to thrive you know, or right. or you know uh i just can't i can't help imagine and sometimes i wonder if the level of compassion fatigue that americans in particular right if we're looking at how other americans are perceiving this conflict it's a very divided yeah. perspective yeah. right rightfully or wrongfully right people are very divided on on what's happening but I think everyone's really missing the point of that. These are real human beings that we're talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder sometimes for people who have not seen what that looks like, can you cultivate that level of compassion in a way that reminds you like, hey, at the end of the day, it doesn't really, regardless of what territory you live in, you know, killing someone indiscriminately in response to uh, in response to additional violence is just ineffective and it's not humane it's just not sure. you know it's the grand solution like 50,000 teachers 50,000 doctors you know yeah, a lot know. of Ma- McDonald's and, and Levi's and rock and roll and just right. saturate the place for 20 years and maybe you get a different environment yeah, yeah and I also I do want to say like I I often find people you know, when talking about this perspective, try to like kind of write it off as like, oh, we're just looking at the world through the rose colored glasses. And of course, there's going to be conflict. And I think, of course, the reality is the reality that we have. Right. Everybody needs to have an opinion on human rights abuses. Right. right. Yes. And I think I think we should really be attuned to uh, to what that really means for our global society when you can zoom out so far that you can justify something as like, well, it's us or them, right? Like regardless of what side you're standing on, both people are saying that. So like, where does that really end? And again, not being, yeah, exactly. No, we're good. And not again, not being like a military expert. I find when I'm talking about the humanitarian perspective and someone is just challenging me and saying well then what should they do right i find yeah. that that's a really hollow argument to it, like take away from a discussion that really needs to take place yeah it is a hollow argument and i believe that we are go our this world is going in the wrong direction if everyone believes that any any transgression can be met with overwhelming force no matter what that level of dismissiveness is very it's very disappointing, <laughs> you know. It's 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 very disappointing, and and, and we're and I'm just kind of it's like I just don't understand. It is like and and not even just that. We're also talking about a nation that is or that are that is a that is a signatory of articles against the very actions that they are taking. How many people have to die before now you guys have to be accountable? How many generations of Palestinians have to be wiped off the face of the earth before these things matter? Yeah, and I I think not to sound crass, but uh for anyone making the argument of like, well, then like what are they supposed to do? Like until you pulled like a dead child out of a, a collapsed building, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question in a way that's going to be effective for people. The Israelis are are saying, well, yeah, we've done that. We did that on on October 7th and 8th and 9th and 10th and 11th. So to to say, well, what else should they do? 
you know, the, the, I mean, I mean, that's actually a really great question to raise, right? I mean, what would we, what did America do when somebody put, you know, these three rockets, airplanes into buildings mm-hmm. um, and had a fourth one on the way, right? It's like we spent $4 trillion and scoured the earth for the guy who did it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the United States, you know, is routinely from 1945 to now engaged in these small wars, um, some bigger than others. Um, how many people died in Iraq right. um, for that adventure? Yeah, the culpability um, is huge. <laughs> yeah, and so so rather than, you know, it's, and here's the real, the, the kind of the real problem is that, you know, maybe instead of like, the, you know, what else should we do? It's, like, it's one thing to say, it's like, well, you know, not kill babies, right? Or don't punch through innocent, like the means of justice, I mean, your means should correspond with your ends, right? And that's, that's where, you know, we've had this conversation earlier. It's like, if you've got a sacrifice 15,000 babies to achieve your goal, um, probably not doing the right thing. And yet... Yeah, maybe the goal needs to be adjusted. Yeah, I mean, maybe the goal needs to be the orientation. And yet, maybe, you know, I mean, we talk about, like, sort of the ideals that everybody signs up for, the United Nations and whatnot. Events, maybe events such as these, and this is the the terrifying thing, maybe events such as these are just showing human nature for what it is. Maybe this, this is, this, this is actually normal. And so this fragile little thing we call civilization and rules, um, it's, it's fragile. That's probably like the real answer to the question. It's like the human condition is extremely complex and even down to, you know, having empathy for what's going on in other places. I remember when, when Megan told me about Haiti, when we first met, you know, we, we were just going on, we, we talked about some really deep stuff on, you know, on our first date. (laughs) Um, Awesome. But when we were talking, when she was talking about like some of the things that she was going through and some of the, you know, some of the loneliness that comes with being in such a existential situation and seeing the things that she saw, you know, one of the one of the things that I told her was I completely understand like where you are coming from and how you can feel that way. And I was like, but I also think it's important to state that human beings like regular everyday people do not want to or want anything to do with the visual of that level of mortality. And it's not, it doesn't make them bad people or anything like that. There's just some levels of death and destruction that regular everyday people cannot handle. I think that empathy has a cost and you have to have the bandwidth to deal with taking on someone else's pain and someone else's, uh, you know, someone else's disparity. And most Americans do not even have the bandwidth to, to, to even, you know, address their own, <laughs> yeah, their own disparity, their own depression and sadness and stuff. And now I gotta, now I gotta think about, you know, kids being, you know, buried in under buildings and stuff like that. Like, this is not about, you know, being righteous or, you know, or even being a humanitarian. Sometimes not looking at something that is absolutely horrible is a point of survival. It's like saying you're suggesting that like empathy requires loss. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I, think I, you I do don't, give I, up I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that empathy is just uh, something that you do. It's, it is a transaction and you either, you are, you either have the emotional kind of fortitude to deal with that. Or you don't. And whether you do or not doesn't make you a, a lesser person or a better person. It's just 
some people can deal with it and push through it. And some people just don't have the space and that is not their fault. Interestingly enough, we never even had, we didn't have the word empathy until like a hundred years ago. Mm. It's a, the German Einfühlung, which is like, just like with feeling, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but we only get it in like in the after, in the aftermath of the uh, first world war. That's, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. I would like to clarify my point earlier too about like the argument of well what should they do does apply to both sides of the conflict saying that i don't know that i made that clear but i agree to the point too of like you know in the united states i think a lot of people have the privilege of distance in a way that so many other people in the world do not have Mm -hmm. um and it is i i do think like it, it is empathy certainly does have a cost um, and just being tuned in has a cost, right? It's exhausting. And, you know, yeah. sometimes like even I think for all of us, like pondering, you know, uh, really heavy topics all the time uh, yeah. is challenging. Yeah, it is. You know, yeah. it's, it's definitely challenging. I think, I think, you know, an important point is that so often the people who are making these decisions that, when you have to have empathy, right, to to engage in the reality of what that looks like, is it such a small group of people who are making the decisions right. to make that happen? Yeah. And then, you know, where does that leave everybody else within that? Um, it's it's an interesting thing to examine. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Deep questions with, uh, but but worthy ones to raise, right? Even if it does yeah. kind of make you kind of bummed out and you kind of see human nature for what it is. I mean, but there's a reason why we're not at each other's throats, just like killing each other over like a scrap of bread or something like that. Right. right? I mean, there's, I would like to believe at least that humanity has matured a great deal, not just over the last two, I mean, 10,000 years, but at least over the last 250 years. Right. And that we do have words for these things like empathy. Um, uh, you know, we do have work. You know, we do understand that like, maybe mass civilian casualties isn't cool, right? right? Yes. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, we didn't have that language in the 1940s, and yet we do now. And that, again, a hundred years ago, like that—that's how much the shift has changed. And so, it's good to grapple with these questions, even if you know other parts of the world don't value human life in the same way. Russia, Ukraine, um, China, most certainly. Um, you know, the Middle East. Um, you know, bits and pieces of Africa. If you look at like West Africa and what happens there. Um, Latin America, even the United States. I mean, we, we're not, we're, we're by no means paragons. Um, yeah, grappling with the question is better than not grappling with it. Right. Yes. Um, and, and examining, you know, kind of like why, you know, this whole friend enemy is like, you know, the, the us versus them. Maybe the, I mean, the better question is, is why is there even an us to begin with? Yeah. And how do you broaden that, that, that circle of us, right? Yeah. I think everyone at this table understands like what the real issue is and it's the humanitarian issue but but we're but people really see this and really just want it to stop it it is it is a struggle to 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 put together what needs to even happen to begin such an american thing to do it's like guys wait chill out let's have a beer (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's like it's like i just we we just wanted to stop yeah i just want to stop i just wanted to stop happening i wake up in the morning and you know i watch the news and you know and i and i go through a bunch of different you know sources um and it's always front and center and i just i just walk around with this this sickness you know in my stomach about what is happening and the, the helplessness that comes with that 
Yeah, and I think collectively we can all look at it and say, like, well, maybe I don't know, like, what the concrete next right. step or answer is, but I think I we don't. can all agree, like, it's not good. Like, yeah, the circumstances sure. is not good. It's where Albert Camus comes in. It's like the whole world is just, like, crap, <laughs> right? And it's, like, yeah. chaos everywhere. It's the like, plague. you know what? <laughs> exactly. Put a middle finger, but both middle fingers to the wind, say, you right. know what? Within the sphere that I can influence, mm-hmm. I'm going to create some order, a cosmos out of the chaos, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. ultimately, that's all you get, right? right? And if you find like-minded people, then band together. Together, and maybe that's how you create an us, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody tending to their own garden and not plowing up your olive trees and putting your own garden back there, that'd be nice. Um, but, you know, but yeah. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think your point, too, of how do you how do you grow what that, like, perception is of the collective us, I think, is yeah. the question of the evening. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. It's a hard one, but uh, we're, we're working on it. And since yeah. we figured it out in the workshop, We'll present it to everybody else, and it'll be great. Yeah, we have a good friend that comes by, uh, Tom. We like yeah. to call it Tom Time. Yeah. <laughs> comes nice. by every Saturday, and we ha- often have discussions just like these. Yeah, and really? He always yeah. says at and the end of the he's night. He's super challenging, too. Like, you're not, yes. not, he's never, like, um, like, he's never gratuitous in any way, but... You know, just the way that he, the way that he abstains questions, it's like you can't get mad at him because it's completely harmless. But it's like, oh, like you're just. <laughs> just, I just so is he like yeah, a, one he's of these well-rounded? Like, yeah, he's well-rounded. Um, like, like a deeply red guy, or is he more like a dodge and he's tapping the window no, with his he's lantern? An old, like, he's an old hippie. Yeah, oh, okay. He's an old hippie. In the best way. Yeah. Cool. And we we cool. love his presence here and just in the community in general. Yeah. But, Everyone, but, every uh, community needs a Tom. Yeah. I agree with that. Every uh, community we needs often, a Tom. every time, like when he's leaving, he's like, oh, well, solving the world's problems, sitting at the bar, <laughs> you know, because we usually sit at the bar downstairs. Yeah. And so, Diogenes, that fits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should have Tom on the podcast. Oh, oh that'd be oh, great. He would be such a great guest. He's oh. had such a, he's had such an incredible life, him and his partner, Kathy. Uh, they both do incredible work in the community. I'd yeah. love to have Tom on the podcast. That needs yeah. to happen. Let's yeah. do it. Okay, yeah, cool. I'd love to do that. <laughs> All right. So I guess we're 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 kind of wrapping up. Um, are you guys reading Corey? You got anything on the? I don't have anything menu? new. I'm still I'm still um, I'm I'm still like getting back into uh, the two books that I picked up. I'm halfway through um, uh, Ryan Grimm's The Squad. Um, I just want to kind of wrap that one up uh, before I get into before gotcha. I get to the Questlove uh, the Questlove book. Um, but uh, yeah. Cool. I'm, I'm getting through it. <laughs> cool. Megan, what you reading? Yeah, I'm still uh, reading the the articles that were put forth, so I haven't gotten too far in that. I've had kind of a crazy week. Okay. Mm-hmm. With uh, GWRC, we're planning the point in time count, as we've talked about before, and that's next mm. week. And so I've been really been in the throes of that. We're excited, but haven't been reading too much lately. But Okay. How, are, how about you, Sean? What you um, I, I read, <laughs> speaking of uplifting books that are positive <laughs> and all that, Carl Schmitt's uh, Legality and Legitimacy. Um mm. Carl Schmitt was a German uh, uh, theorist and legalist of the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s and was enthusiastic um, with the uh, the opposing regime um, and unrepentant into the 1960s and 50s and 60s. Um, Like they actually tried to denazify him. He's like, nope, not doing it. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, you can be unreconstructed over there. But Mm -hmm. um, but one of the 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 things he kind of he's known for, at least, is his challenge to liberal democracies like parliamentary bureaucracies descend into factions. Those factions separate. Um, then the separations become sharp. You get the us versus them. And he talks about this friend enemy 
distinction. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't escape it. Like this is it. It's like for every time you 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 say you want to do something political, there's going to be somebody that's an enemy out there that's the ability to kill you if they could. Right. And so if this is politics, then people kind of rush to their camps, and at one point in time. One side overwhelms the other, and then it restarts the whole process. And so his question is like, where does legitimacy come from? Well, you know, God, show them. Nope. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then we don't have God. Um, is it uh, majorities? It's like, nope, because if you get 51%, a majority can do the most terrible things to the minority mm-hmm. um, when they get the opportunity. So it's not from the people. And so initially he goes for like a Supreme Court Um which I think the 1920s and the Weimar period, but that doesn't work for him. And then he goes for what he calls the sovereign, which, you know, of course you get Adolf Hitler and then he's like, oh, that's the sovereign. He has the power to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, he goes away. And so he just kind of, so eventually you get to this latter philosophy and he's sitting there going, he's like, well, pretty much anyone with a gun or anybody with a, you know, like a weapon of mass destruction, his whole thing at the, towards the end is like, Nuclear weapons are going to be so cheap and available that you, any anybody can just kind of say, I am a sovereign, and just, boom, mm-hmm. knock out the world. Um, and so he's kind of, like, despondent towards the end. Um, but this idea of legitimacy moves. So, But unfortunately, you, I mean, Peter Thiel talks about this a great deal, but like this is kind of like the, the where we're at. Most of your power structures are literally based on power. Yeah. And so their morality is Schmittian, raw Schmittian power, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so at any point in time, any minority can say, you know what, I've had enough. And they just grab their guns and go. And that becomes a legitimate alternative to, to the existing system. And so when that gets popularized, like and everybody figures it out that all they have to do is self-eject, mm-hmm. how do you maintain civil society? And this is like what like, thinkers like you know, Leo Strauss or Rene Girard and Carl Schmidt are all thinking about. This is all thesis driven, by the way. So this is why I'm in these deep books. But, um, yeah, it can make you really despondent really quick if you kind of look at it and say, Ew. Yeah. It's like, yeah. All, like this is just human. I mean, you get to like the human nature things. This is really just who we are. The, like, yeah. It really is based on power. Yeah, and, most, of yeah the, most of the things that we are seeing today is because there's a really small group of people on both sides of conflicts that are going on all over the country that is more concerned with consolidating their power and the civilization suffer. Right, and, and that, that's, that's actually it. like you get to like Catholic things. There's this like like this whole like individualism versus the common good. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like that's the that problem because people are not ends unto themselves. People die. Oh yeah, right. And so there has to be a deeper end behind it. And so for Catholics, it's going to be. Oh yeah, which is yeah. isn't a very popular option at the end of the day. But right. um, like, there's something. But you're not just an individual who can just get the most toys and then die. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer so, of the concept that no no one is an island and everyone is a part of a larger whole or a part of the body. And you know what you do unto yourself, you do unto the body. I do I do believe that that is a real concept, and we yeah. see that play out. You know, whether it's at local municipalities all the way up to, you know, the highest level of uh, federal policy, um, what you know, what people are doing unto themselves does tend to spread, you know, throughout the populace and nothing can nothing can truly be contained. And that's why we have things like, you know, what you do in the dark night comes out in the morning light. Yeah, Some, true, yeah. like, somehow these things move through human beings, whether it's a, whether that's spiritual, religious or otherwise, or, you know, whatever, whatever that mechanism is, yeah. nothing just happens. And then like, and like no one ever truly knows about it. Yeah. Or in a darker sense, it's actually what you use to keep people down. Right. right. Cause if you, if the whole threat of sovereign power is like, well, I can just go out there and shoot up a bank. Right. Like, well, oh, you can do that. But now you, you move into like the, the corporate espionage state. 
Yeah. Or and that's like 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 the dark. I mean, that's 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 the Torwell, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. where it all goes to pieces. Nobody wants to live in that kind of condition. Right. Yeah, I reflect on this pretty often of just the idea, like, does power corrupt us all? You know. Yeah. There's a deep yeah. deep thought to end the night, but. You know, yeah. sometimes I wonder. I guess like the, the <laughs> you, you know, know, like the, the Catholic answer to that is it's absolutely. It's mm-hmm. like in the, the Orthodox have this whole thing where it's like, you know, it's like evil encroaching in the world as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you find human beings, you will find evil. And it's like, and that might make you really sad. But you know what? You're commanded to do a handful of things like feed the feed the hungry, clothe mm-hmm. the naked, visit the, 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 the imprisoned, take care of your widows and orphans. Um, you know, do those things. You know, God will forgive you. Don't worry about forgiving yourself. It seems like a pretty decent option, right? If I'm, yeah, I, I'll take that deal, right? <laughs> um, sold. Sold, yeah. And then the world's not as hopeless anymore. So yeah. it's like yes. you're realizing, yeah, I do have power, but it's not for myself. It's for others. Yeah. Um, you do have to, you have to balance that. Yeah. I often get that question a lot. It's like, it's so grim, you yeah. know, like the work often that I'm engaged in. But if you don't have the hopefulness piece, like you're then what's the point? You know what I mean? You have to have a vision for a better future, like a collective forward change. Yeah. And that's how we have like, that's how we get legends of our time. People that transcend, you know, uh, you know, public discourse and find, you know, those uh, it's uh, the resilience of the, of the the human spirit, um, you know, in spite of hopelessness at, at times, but, in anywhere that we can, anywhere that we can cultivate that is usually going to be better for everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I would say that, you know, there are many, many people in Gaza and in Israel that are representative of that resilience today. Mm-hmm. Sure. Absolutely. And representative of the problem as well, right? Mm-hmm. If it's mine, mm-hmm. well, then it's, it's nobody's yeah. at the end of the day and they can be taken. Yes. Um, but if it's everybody's, then it can never be taken. It can never yeah. be taken. And that's a, true. yeah, there it is. So on that cheerful, hopeful note, maybe, maybe not cheerful, but at least hopeful is like, there's, there's, there's a light in the horizon and it's, it's, it's there, but we just need to keep striving for it. So on that hopeful note, thank you and good night for all of us here at the New Dominion Podcast. Again, I'm uh, co-host Sean Kenny. Marty has been out sick, but Marty, we hope you're feeling better. Have a great week. Take care of one another and we'll catch you next time.